Hey everyone, on today's episode, we invited Dr. Jeffrey Becker, the co-founder and chief scientific officer of Bexon Biomedical, to discuss his company's innovations in the formulation and delivery of ketamine for chronic pain. Bexon Biomedical has patented a new delivery system that's based on the insulin pump that could be used to deliver subperceptual chronic doses of ketamine subcutaneously for patients with post-operative or chronic pain, all within the comfort of their own home. As an alternative to opioids, which can be highly addictive and have wreaked absolute havoc in this country, this invention, which is tamper-resistant and tightly controlled by your physician, could revolutionize chronic pain treatment. So this invention is really two parts. One is a delivery device, which could enable at-home and personalized pain treatment delivered at the doses and times that are best for you as determined by you as well as your physician. Two is a formulation of ketamine itself, which normally could not be delivered subcutaneously and would normally require either an intravenous administration, which could not be done without a professional, or a nasal spray, which is difficult to dose correctly and precisely. Now, this episode was recorded back in July 2022. Since then, in collaboration with the Stevenato Group, Bexon Biomedical was awarded the Parenteral Drug Association's Drug Delivery Innovation Award for their inventions. In this conversation, we hear about Dr. Becker's motivation in the field of psychedelic medicine, the chemical and technological feats underlying Bexton Biomedical's platform, which sets ketamine apart from classical psychedelics and common painkillers, and ways in which Bexton's technology could be applied to broader mental health indications. This is Psych Exchange. Welcome, Dr. Jeffrey Becker, to the Psych Exchange podcast. Thank you so much for your time. So first, we would love to get to know you better, learn about your pharmacology research experience and how those um, awesome life opportunities have led to your current clinical practices in ketamine-based work, and of course, how that has led to your innovation in spearheading Bexton Biomedical. Well, thank you both and appreciate the invite. I think you've created a nice platform here and, and uh, it's really nice to see young people being interested in this field. I think it's a very exciting field. Uh, my history uh, is, it really starts in undergraduate, actually. Uh, I found myself being very curious and a bit disturbed by changes in my own perception of the world that felt very constricting and I felt like I was losing touch with something and I think as I've gotten older I know now that what I was losing touch with was the numinous the kind of uh, uh, you know the transcendent which was more present to me when I was younger and I was looking for answers I ended up finding psychedelics in college they were not hard to find at UC Berkeley uh, so that was uh fortuitous for me, it definitely changed my life in terms of um, resolving something relatively quickly when I was young that that I think would I was feeling uh, could be could be, you know, detrimental to my life in terms of me becoming myself. I when I went to medical school, I really actually honestly went to med school in order to become a psychiatrist and specifically in order to 
bring a knowledge of kind of molecules and transcendence as a, as a route of healing. I studied religion in college, biology, of course, uh, to go uh, towards medicine, but was very interested in bringing those ideas uh, into the psychiatric space. And, and honestly, it wasn't a new idea. If you really look at the old models of psychiatry early on, um, psychiatrist as healer, as therapist, you know, uh, a lot of the early uh, uh, psychological theory came from MDs, actually. Uh, so it really felt felt kind of proper to me to be thinking about body, mind, and spirit all at the same time, if you're going to go into this field. Uh, and then I had the second kind of fortuitous experience in my life, uh, which was to have a chance to try ketamine, actually. And it was so fascinating and it was so fast uh, in terms of the transformation of consciousness that I became specifically deeply interested in how that could happen actually, because it's very different than the psychedelics and the way that it works. I can get into that a little bit. Uh, I've, I've done a, a really a 20 year dive on the, on the way that these molecules work and, and how they kind of disrupt kind of normal scope of consciousness. But, um, that specifically, uh, you know, caused me to dive into the GABAergic inner neuron net and how it controls scope of consciousness and the chandelier cells and basket cells and NMDA receptors in, you know, agonizing detail. People thought I was a little odd how specifically I was interested in that particular receptor, but it's turned out to be a very important receptor. Uh, it actually had not really been described for that long by the time when I was when I was at that field. So I've been kind of watching the the field grow. Uh, I am not a primary researcher in the sense of of doing that very difficult work that so many researchers do uh, and producing that information for the world. I'm more translational. That's really where my strength lies: is bringing things together from different arenas and kind of producing hopefully something that's helpful uh, and. And that's specifically how I got a chance to see what ketamine could do, which is I, I, I went out into my private practice and I started to offer this for depression, for post-traumatic stress disorder in the process of treating patients for, you know, I'm going on 18 years now. Um, I, I got to witness directly how effective ketamine was for pain uh, and not just at the psychic level, uh, at the mental level, but at the, even at the physical level that people would call me uh, in the days afterward and say, I feel so much better, but I have to tell you, I can't believe how much my, how my, my back pain went away. Uh, I think that there are so many loops and it's very difficult sometimes to know where the sourcing is of, of pain, but there was definitely a physical component to the pain, to the pain relief that they were describing. It was not just psychic relief kind of translating into a, the freedom in the body or that kind of thing. I really think that what I was witnessing was, was a, uh, a powerful effect at many different levels. And, and that's how I got here. It was about five years ago. We started Bexham Biomedical with my partner. And uh, the, the main idea was uh, to actuate ketamine's potential for human beings by uh, providing control over kinetics, control over pharmacokinetics. Ketamine's got a very short half-life and it's very important to get the right blood level for the, for the goal uh, in terms of treatment. 
with, with depression, you want a high blood level relatively fast. With, with pain, you want lower blood levels and maybe a little bit extra when you need it, that kind of thing. Very different kind of patterning. And really, I felt that the only way that one could do that would be to bring the insulin pump technology to this particular, uh, this particular application. Uh, the, insulin pump, the insulin pumps are exquisite. They're just amazing devices. I mean, it's been so, it's transformed, you know, the lives of, of type 1 diabetics, of course. But to parlay that, kind of exquisite technology over to other arenas and specifically to ketamine where uh where again the control over that delivery is so specifically important so important for getting the job done that you're trying to get done and not having things happen that you don't want to have happen like too high of a dose and pushing people into dissociative effects when you're just trying to treat pain or something like that in the at a physical level at least um uh that that would be that would be a boon. That would be a big deal. Um, and we could get a lot done. I definitely want to hear a lot more about uh, how your inspiration for the device came from the insulin pump, because yeah. that immediately clicked for me. And I totally didn't notice that at first because that's not my background, but that is really cool. Um, but super quickly, before we get really into the device, I think it's really important to define what is chronic pain, who gets it, what are the current options for patients and why does ketamine and also your delivery device for ketamine provide a really important alternative for them? Pain, pain okay, so when we talk about physical pain, um, we, it, it's very important to understand that there are many different forms of pain. There's many different, there are many different mechanisms that pain is, is signal is delivered to the brain. And there are many different ways that the brain processes those signals. So it's not one thing, but there are some commonalities across really all pain forms. And that has to do with the learning of the pain circuit the learning to be in pain. So when you get an insult, let's say you have, you know, a cut or a crush or a surgery or, you know, damage or a trauma, there's something that has happened that should offer a pain signal. Um, the immediate signal, we call acute pain. That's, that's communication that something's wrong. Um, it's proper. Uh, we sometimes it's very serious, especially because, you know, way, way back, we weren't able to do surgeries. Now we're able to do things that, that create serious pain. And yet we'll save the humans. So we need to manage that pain. Um, the problem that we have with the way that we manage acute pain is that with opioids, what we do is we treat that pain and, and truthfully, opioids are actually quite effective at treating acute pain, but we actually ratchet up the process that's going on underneath so that acute pain can often graduate and become chronic pain. The very treatment that we offer to patients for acute pain actually can very often lead to a chronic pain problem. And chronic pain is so specifically its own thing sometimes that uh, people's you know, injuries have healed, everything is fine, tissues are, are healed up, there's no reason to be in pain anymore and yet people stay in pain a lot of times because the learning of the circuitry, it's a little bit like, I mean, it's like any complex system, right? It becomes what it is based on what it was over and over again with reiteration. Well, the NMDA receptor is particularly important in that. 
So the NMDA receptor is a very, very special receptor. It's, it, it basically identifies significance. And when significance is occurring, it changes the way that neurons interact with each other through calcium influx. And that's where learning occurs. So the learning of pain um, happens over time through the NMDA receptor. And ketamine blocks that receptor really quite, quite perfectly. Um, it's one of the cleanest NMDA receptor drugs that we have currently available to us in medical. Right. And so, right. So that's super important to define early on. So ketamine is not activating the NMDA receptor. It's blocking it. And so, uh, right. So, you know, rather than, uh, ideally rather than causing aberrant learning, uh, it's preventing aberrant learning or slowing it somehow Mm -hmm. or blocking it. Um, so yeah, that's, Fantastic. So do you think then that this, um, is there evidence that this is less addictive than opioids or less prone to abuse? Um, and can you state, you know, why that's so important right now in the 21st century? So if you, yeah, if you were to punch in the word ketamine and addiction and, uh, tolerance and, you know, dependence and things like that, you will get hits. There's no doubt about it. And, and I would never want to imply that, that people can't have an addiction to ketamine, but one thing is clear. Uh, and that is that the physical addiction to ketamine is not, not anywhere near an issue. In fact, it's so much not an issue that there are many, many psych medications that we use every day, you know, SSRIs, let's say, or benzodiazepines. There are a lot of medications, even gabapentin, something that's considered quite benign, that people have a physical dependence upon that is much, much more intense than the physical dependence of even a substantial ketamine habit uh, that's out there. If you talk to addicts, if you go in and read Patients can essentially stop ketamine cold. They don't feel great. They have kind of mild aches and pains in the week afterward, but it's nothing like, uh, you know, an opioid withdrawal. It's nothing like a benzodiazepine withdrawal. Uh, so, and it's honestly, it's not even anything. It's not even as bad as stopping citalopram uh, or Xanax. Um, so, so on the physical side, we have this kind of really nice circumstance where the, where physical dependence is not, is not really the issue. There can be psychological dependence over time, kind of like you can become psychologically dependent almost to anything that has a reward kind of component to it. But with ketamine, it does appear that the more often that people have access and use and the more maybe they're vulnerable to there's people that are more addictive to addictive addiction circuits and stuff like that, um, that they can fall into that patterning. And the typical thing that you will hear and see is that people will, you know, use it up until it's gone, be kind of bummed out when it's not there, but they kind of get over it. And then when it shows up, use it up till it's gone, uh, kind of thing. Uh, there's a lot of social toxicity to that, uh, people kind of disappearing from, you know, from their families and from, you know, their social networks and things like that. There can, of course, be bad things that happen when people are are too high uh, too often. Um, if people use ketamine too much, there's definitely a risk of certain uh, certain downstream toxicity, like to the bladder. We know there's ketamine bladder is very real. Uh, you have to use a fair amount for a fair amount of time, but it is real and it can have horrifying, certain horrifying, uh, you know, ramifications. 
And too much ketamine in the brain for too long also may blunt the ability to enjoy and interact with other humans and feel warmth and feel connected. Uh, that's a little more obscure, but I actually do believe that, that that is probably true, that people that are using, you know, every day uh, for long periods of time, probably not, not good. Thank you for acknowledging that there are potential risks associated with okay. ketamine, such as, as you mentioned, with high doses, with, you know, certain durations of usage, but also the recognition that, as you mentioned, most, if not all, you know, neuropsychiatric compounds on the market have some sort of dependence propensities. So with that said, we would love to learn a bit about your device, such as, you know, what does it look like? How does it function? And of course, at your comfortability, we would love to learn a bit about the formulation of this device. The, uh, I kind of, I, I should have had it here with me. Um, we have, we have a non-working unit. We will have an actual working unit by the end of the year, the first generation in engineering, uh, where you actually, you know, have something that, that actually does what it does, what it's supposed to do. Uh, you run that and then you, you fix it and any, any mistakes you've made, you fix it and you have gen two and all that until you're done. But, um, the gist of it is you can think of something about the size of a pager, um, if you remember those, and uh, it would be something you take a you take the stickum off, you put it on your body, and basically you press a button, and it starts to deliver a very small amount of a kind of a basal rate we call it, where it's kind of continuously going of ket of ketamine that would give a bit of relief to tissues that have been damaged in surgery. So, one of the perfect kind of examples of where this might have a have have a, a uh, a particular role is severe surgeries like a total knee replacement, uh, sometimes abdominal surgeries, things, things that can be quite painful afterward. Um, that small amount should be able to keep a lot of this circuitry and that learning of pain from kind of cranking up the ratcheting that occurs, click, 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 that happens. Uh, one of the problems, again, with uh, opioids is you click forward, very difficult to click back. And so stopping that clicking forward, that, that feed forward of pain is partly what that basal rate is for. And then the, and then the pump also has a bolus option so that people can give themselves a little bit uh, of extra. And in reality, the truth is, is this is not, you know, none of this is rocket science. We do, we do patient controlled analgesia on the ward all the time, every day, all over the entire United States and world. So we know that patients actually do have a very good sense of what their pain level is and that they can actually manage their pain if they're given certain parameters, they can press a button. And if they're pressing it too often, if you know that the amount they're pressing it would actually cause trouble, there's lockouts, right? So they can only give themselves so much so often. And if you put that into place, people can do a good job of controlling their pain. They take what they need. They usually don't take more than they need. Um, it's actually quite reassuring, actually, that patients pretty much um, offer themselves and, and treat themselves properly. In fact, actually, there's even some evidence that they use less medicine uh, when they're given control in this way. So patient-controlled analgesia, you can think of what we're developing as basically kind of like a pocket IV that enables that at home, on the ward, whatever kind of circumstance. The, the thing that we're doing that's a little bit different as far as the, as far as the pump is concerned is that we have a two-part design. We have a motor, a chip, all the information that's on that drives the unit, and then we have drug pods. The drug pods are very affordable 
the motor is where the expense is, the chip, all the electronics, right? So to have multiple days, multiple pods, we're able to save enough money in that process by only having one of these that we actually have, you have to really think about medical economics in this kind of circumstance. You can build a Ferrari, but if people can't buy it, if it doesn't fit within the medical model, it's not going to be a product. So we, so we've been, we put a lot of time in thinking into, you know, where are, where are those lines in terms of cost structure and, you know, what, 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 you know, can, what can the model sustain for a new treatment that has, that has new utility in that sense. So, um, let me take one step back and explain. If you think about these two parts, the other advantage of that is that for a controlled substance that's going to be in the home, you only have one drive unit. So you can't put multiple pods on your body at the same time. You can't put two on yourself, one on your friend. You can't put one on yourself, another one the next day and realize you're not going to use those and sell them to a friend, that kind of thing. So um, we really want to reassure the agency that we are thinking long and deep about how to avoid diversion and abuse and that kind of thing. That also the drug pot is pre-filled and pre-sterilized. And what that means is the patient never touches the drug. Um, you know, in reality, you can get into anything if you have the right tools, but you know, you can take a hammer to it and you can hit it and you can break it open. You can break a lot of things open with a hammer, right? But um, it's, it's, not it would not be an easy thing to abuse in the way that uh you know a bottle full of opioid pills is i mean honestly you can take them all in the parking lot right outside of the pharmacy if you want it's the normal mode so we're trying to fix a little bit of that kind of on that note of kind of what makes your device so innovative we know that for ketamine we're thinking about all the various you know sorts of routes of administration it could be intranasal maybe iv but when Sophie and I, when we were exploring the website, we were, we were just so kind of curious that this is a subcutaneous administration. Um, you know, may we hear a bit about what about the subcutaneous delivery may impact the pharmacokinetics or kind of make this device, you know, unique? Well, you know, if you think about it, it's, it's actually, to some extent, it's a reverse engineering here. You know, I wanted to have all the exquisite control over ketamine that an insulin pump offers, but an insulin pump only offers that subcutaneously, right? So then the, then the next question is, well, how do we make subcutaneous ketamine? Um, there's, let, me, let me explain ketamine and what's a, what's a bit of a puzzle here is that we've been using ketamine for years and years. It's FDA approved for IV or IM, intramuscular uh, injection. We also compound it, compounding pharmacies for sublingual, intranasal, um, and then intranasal S-ketamine came along through Jadson Pharmaceuticals, which was wonderful that they did that heavy lifting and approved, got an approved drug. Um, wonderful. Um, there's only one route of administration that is not commonly used, and that is subcutaneous delivery. And there's a reason for that. And that's because ketamine in a bottle, as it's delivered uh, to a medical office, is a little bit like salty orange juice. Uh, it's got about twice twice the salt content of you know the of the tissue, uh, kind of like ocean water, and it's got a pH of about three point five, which is a little bit like orange juice. So you can think of salty orange juice. Well, that tissue, that kind of fat layer on your belly, right? It doesn't like that. 
it's kind of under kind of easy to see why right so if you you the thing is is that it actually works quite well you can actually you can deliver ketamine subcutaneously it will work quite well for pain it will work quite well for depression but we don't have a medical product because what happens is people get what's called a sterile abscess in the tissue it burns the cells where it goes in that high salt content will suck water out of cells kind of like you know, like a salty towel from the beach never like has trouble drying. Like salt holds water, pulls water, right? So it pulls water out of the cells. The osmolality is too high, it pulls, and that can desiccate the cells. And then you add on to that, you know, pH 3.5, like orange juice, you know, even just orange juice in the tummy, right? Can make your tum your stomach upset. And it's kind of used to it. So um, so you can see why it's never really been a viable route of, of administration. And so we set ourselves to fixing that ketamine is a weird weird molecule actually it turns out it once you get up to its pka just slightly over its pka which is the balance point between half ionized and half non-ionized all falls out of solution and so it's a non-stable it's very hard to raise the ph um, without some tricks uh, what we did is we took a cyclodextrin molecule that's actually an approved excipient for what we call parenteral uh, formulations, which means you're not taking them orally, going around the GI tract is what that means. So IV, sub-Q, IM are parenteral. Sometimes people will argue that sublingual is parenteral. It's kind of not quite the same as saying that, but you know, true parenteral, sub-Q, IM, IV. Um, this excipient is essentially, uh, it's called captosol. Um, it is normally a sodium salt. We change it into the acid and we use that acid to titrate ketamine free base down to the desired pH, which is seven. And we could not get to seven. It turned out we can only get to 5.5, but 5.5 is a lot better than 3.5. So it's a hundred times less acidic. And the other thing that that did is we have a seven valence salt. And what that means is, is that one captosol is complexing seven ketamines and you don't you basically offloaded all of that osmotic load because you don't have all that extra sodium and what you've done now is you've you've been able to we can concentrate that formulation down into a three mil cartridge and have a sufficient amount uh, that can be effective for pain uh, so it was a bit it was really it was pretty amazing actually to watch uh yeah what right yes pharmacology no, you guys get it it's sometimes people i know people glaze over but you uh, you too i knew i could talk to about this and uh it's pretty fun absolutely it's so innovative amazing and inspirational to hear that this unique formulation is so tailored to the optimal form of delivery as you mentioned which is subcutaneous over you know other forms tissue, of, right? you know parental um, you know, forms of administration. So yeah, thank you for clarifying that. And I think, um, you know, another component that really probes Sophie and I's, you know, interest in your device is that it's unique in that it can be at home. So as you mentioned, you know, if someone has a knee replacement surgery, you know, they have this, you know, very intense experience. What is the benefit of having this at home solution as opposed to other ketamine options currently, you know, under investigation, such as, you know, mail-in order or, you know, ketamine clinics, for instance? 
So it's a complex question, and I'll and I'll and I'll I will point out some of the friction points uh, in terms of medical care and medical care delivery. Uh, you know, decision making, and then actually the realities of getting it done. But uh, the key is at home is is one of the keys. I mean, people are in pain at home. Uh, you know, you can't have them come in. Oh, if you're in pain, come on in. You know, they're going to be in pain. They're going to be in pain every four to six hours when the opioids wear off. If they have a total knee and it's going to be they're going to be in pain for a, a chunk of time you know that for sure so this is why we still prescribe opioids I and mean, they're not going anywhere we're always going to prescribe opioids but what we need is other tools and we need those tools to be in the home okay currently the only other relatively powerful pain management drugs that exist are the nsaids or the cox2 inhibitors that block cyclooxygenase you really have to be careful with those, especially when people are in a fragile condition. They have cardiac toxicity, they have kidney toxicity, they have GI toxicity. They actually can impair healing. So if you've done a GI surgery and you've done an anastomosis, a small bowel together, and you've stitched that bowel together, you want that to heal. And you don't want something that can cause that healing to, to, to be impaired. So NSAIDs are very dicey in post-surgical pain management in a lot of circumstances for a lot of different reasons. Opioids we've already talked about. So we need treatments at home um, in order to, because ketamine has such a short half-life and because the blood level is so important for treating pain. In other words, you don't really want a high blood level. You want a medium or low blood level that's actually more steady. You don't want peaks and valleys. You don't want ups and downs. Each one of those ups is associated with ketamine getting pushed substantially into the brain. We have what we call kind of a compartment effect where the ketamine goes into the brain and then it redistributes out of the brain. But that moment when it's kind of coming in quickly and then takes a little time and it leaves, the kind of brain half-life of ketamine is more like 45 minutes, even though the actual true half-life of ketamine it's much longer than that, but that's because it goes in and then it leaves. So that's why you don't want these peaks and valleys. And that's why oral delivery, you know, like a lozenge or a pill or something like that is not really ideal for pain management with ketamine. You can do that with other things, but with the short half-life and the kind of exquisiteness of needing to get the dosing right, um, it's why oral delivery, it doesn't work very well, especially in post-operative pain management. Um, if you, there are circumstances where sublingual, intranasal, oral delivered ketamine actually can have an, uh, have a very beneficial effect for patients, especially for chronic pain. Um, and uh, uh, they, they can often kind of thread the needle on that, uh, but it takes some time and it takes, you have to work with the patient uh, and kind of find the dose. It's not really an easy kind of out of the box medical product. In other words, these are patients that are naive to all of this, right? They're not developing a regimen for chronic pain that they develop over months and years with the clinic, with the doctor in relationship. This is something they need help right now. It needs to work. And so that's, that's really what we're offering. We're offering an out of the box solution for a very difficult problem. Yeah, absolutely. And like, in, in comparison with other psychedelic treatments to the fact that it's at home uh, right now, uh, the only way to get treated with a psychedelic for something in any clinically appropriate way is in a study 
in an office, that's very expensive to do uh, with, you need two therapists in the room with you. And uh, so to be able to have, you know, a device that can deliver uh, an appropriate dosage that one can take on their own and throughout the day as needed, that's a really big deal. Um, and another thing that, another part of your product that I think uh, uh, assists this is uh, to what I understand, it's also Bluetooth connected and theoretically it uh, can communicate patient data to clinics uh, from what I understood from what I read in real time. And, uh, and as you mentioned with the lockout function, potentially a doctor could remote control uh, uh, the dosage that the patient is getting. So that really got me really excited because to me, this opens a whole door for not just, you know, really safe delivery of sometimes unpredictable drugs, but it opens an entire door to precision psychiatry, which is a new field. Um, but this way it's not just precision psychiatry because, oh, we know the patient's genome ahead of time. It's precision psychiatry really because the patient can tell the doctor my pain is spiking in the evening. So the doctor can design a program where uh, they get more ketamine in the evening or something like that. And I just think this could really change the face of medicine. So how, how do you envision this being used? Um, and uh, yeah, tell us more about what that interface and communication really looks like. Well, no, I think you definitely, it's, it's a great setup because that's, that's exactly what we're why we have built this thing in a modular fashion from, from start. Uh, we are working with a, a wonderful device manufacturer and a, a really venerable company, uh, Steven Auto Group, who have been in medical glass, uh, fill and finish device development, uh, Italian group that's uh, you know inter international, but they have a, an amazing uh, track record of, of quality. And from the start, uh, we agreed, they agreed with us and, and we decided to build this product in a modular fashion because there's so much need even outside of ketamine for precision delivery of small molecules uh, in, you know, and actually to some extent agnostic to location, we're starting with at-home ketamine for pain management, acute pain management and post-operative situations. But in reality, there's all kinds of even supervised settings where this would still be a useful product. Uh, the fact that it has a Bluetooth connectivity uh, on the chip in our Gen 1 will not be built into at least our current plans, but we wanted to have that capacity both for potential ketamine, either record keeping, because uh, doctors often don't know what's going on. They don't actually often know why something's not working. Uh, patients often don't remember what was happening to them five days ago uh, or two weeks ago. You know, what happened on Tuesday, two weeks ago, you probably have trouble telling me, right? So they don't remember why things weren't working or why they used more during last week and less this week and things like that. And so to gather that information, to have records for decision-making, there's value there. There's also the capacity, especially in supervised settings, to control the device from a separate unit. Um, and you could imagine that being very useful. I'm going to actually transition to, you know, the capacity of this pump and this model to deliver psychedelics in the office. Uh, you might imagine DMT, which we have a formulation of DMT that, that each pod would essentially offer somewhere between one to two hour ayahuasca like experience 
and the pod could be controlled either through, uh, you know, like in uh, possibly biometric uh, information or by uh, the doctor from a device, or it can be uh, controlled with buttons and stuff on the device itself. So we wanted kind of on all optionality. Um, the nice thing about delivering, and so this, the psychedelic industry is, you know, it's here to stay. I think we're moving out of a psychedelic 1.0 to 2.0. Uh, there are a lot of companies that started and didn't didn't necessarily have it all thought out as to how they were going to get from here to there. And, uh, you know, the money money's tightened up a little bit, as we all know, uh, with the markets and everything. And I think it's uh, we're going to have a, a bit of a shift where the companies that are thinking about what it means to be a true viable medical product versus not having figured all that out are going to separate from each other. But one of the advantages of an approach like this, subcutaneous psychedelics in supervised settings, most likely. I don't think we're quite ready with society for people to be, you know, having full trips at home with a medical script. You can do that if you want. You know, they're not that hard to find if you are uh, interested in this, of course. But, uh, but in a, you know, where a doctor's responsible, it's probably that somebody will be, will be there. Um, but to be able to dose attune to the patient in real time, to be able to turn, turn it up, you know, be in control, have things come on relatively quickly instead of it being like a 45-minute wait period, even sometimes like with something like mescaline, it could be three hours of waiting before the drug comes on. Um, and to, in the circumstance of something like DMT, not to deactivate the detox apparatus, not to give an MAO inhibitor uh, that would make it so that you don't really know when the person's going to land this way you can get them into the space by delivering more drug when you stop the pod when you stop the infusion they come back to ground in about 15 minutes because their detox, detox apparatus is still uh you know is still working you didn't deactivate it um and the other the other big piece which i well there's two big pieces that i would point to in neurology, the GI tract is sometimes called the second brain, the gut. You know, we have so many neurons and these neurons actually feed up to our brain so significantly that they can create a lot of nausea, malaise, kind of what we call visceral noise, uh, visceral unpleasantness. And the 5-HT2 receptors, there are lots and lots of them in the gut. So sending the psychedelics down the hatch, you know, oral psychedelics, sending them by the second brain before they even reach the first brain if you think about it it really doesn't make a lot of sense i mean this is they this is how they arrived for us and this is why we how we have used them but if we're going to innovate these for the next thousand years um, it probably makes sense to explore the potential of offering these to people without actually activating the entire gi tract before they even get to the brain and um, there can be i think that there can be a gentler approach uh, on the one hand, and, and the truth is, is that the time frames can be controlled much better, and they fit with a medical office. And psychiatrists, they just don't—they don't offer IVs generally. So that's the other thing is we're trying to develop a device that psychiatrists can actually use. We're just so excited for you know where this is at <laughs> and where it will go. And I think when you mentioned uh, psychedelics, you know, 2.0, these novel generations of psychedelics, that's the perfect segue into our question of the concept of analogs. So, you know, with this idea of ketamine, this, you know, compound of interest for one of your devices, 
we know that, you know, for decades of research that, you know, there are two, you know, there are different enantiomers of ketamine, this R versus S, this, you know, twin mirror image molecules. And, you know, for the concept of analogs, we know that, as you mentioned, for psilocybin, there's interests in creating analogs of, you know, modified duration of action, latency, hallucinogenic properties. But what are your thoughts on analogs of ketamine? And we know that, um, at least from you know our awareness for the decades of research of ketamine, there hasn't been much, um, you know, I guess, research on analogs of ketamine. So we were just wondering if you had any kind of thoughts on that. Well, I mean, there are there's a there is a lot of interest in the commercial programs out there. Um, there are new chemical entities that are coming down the pike um, from us, and also if you you know if you're following Gilgamesh, and I, I believe there are probably other companies out there. And there are research chemicals that are out there that people are using, you know, uh, you know, they're non-scheduled molecules that people are buying on the internet and they're trying them out. And there's a lot of information about some of those. Uh, a, a, one specific example would be deschloroketamine. It's ketamine without the chlorine. And actually, you can kind of think of it as ketamine that's twice as long and twice as strong. So. Uh, it probably, you know, all the details on enantiomers and things like that, you know, I don't, I don't really know, but uh, these molecules are, are out there to some extent in the research chemical market, which is a very interesting kind of gray market that just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm agnostic to that. I don't, you know, I think people do what they want to do and, and, uh, but it's quite an interesting situation where we have human data on molecules before we have animal data. That's not really the normal way things happen. Um, so um, there are, I think that we will develop improvements on, on ketamine over time. We do have a couple of NMDA receptor antagonists that are in, that are very clear and they're in the medical market. Um, one is of course, Memantine, uh, or Nemenda is the brand name for that. Uh, we use that to, uh, as, as FDA approved as a anti Alzheimer's drug quite a potent actual NMDA receptor antagonist. And it actually has many hours of action, uh, but it has a, a, a kind of a different profile uh, and it doesn't seem to be as helpful. Um, the kind of on and off and which receptors it hits is not uh, as useful, it seems. Uh, we also have dextromethorphan, of course, uh, the cough, cough medication. Uh, and dextromethorphan was even reformulated as, as uh, uh, new Dexta, where they gave a little bit of quinidine in order to keep it from getting broken down and make a long-acting preparation. Very interesting drug that's used for pseudobulbar affect um, and has other uses for uh, off-label. Um, used it for OCD. I've even used it for depression. Um, so I think we have a lot of, we have, there will be a lot of innovation over time. What what we decided as far as our, uh, our value and our proposition was go with what we know, go with the thing that we know works well and is known to be quite safe, especially at the doses we're talking about, and do what you need to do to actuate it, as opposed to start from scratch with a new chemical entity, because you're really looking at many, many years and a lot of risk to bring a new chemical entity to market. It, it's, it's a very expensive proposition and it's very prone to failure. Um, repurposing a drug that exists already and is known to be safe and already is known to have efficacy in the field you're going into, but that you are breathing new efficacy into through your program is a much more, it's a much higher 
uh, you know, percentage of success. So that's that's nice on the one hand. But uh, to be clear, what we're doing is to actuate ketamine in general with this as our flagship. We we are ex very excited about you know when we get our phase one data back, we are uh, really understanding the FDA's take on what we're doing. We've developed a relationship with them. We understand them. You know, it's branching our program and looking at mental health applications uh, and even other indications uh, out there. Yeah. So. Um kind of uh, along with that, th there's this whole, um, uh, there's this whole direction in the field that's about optimizing, uh, some effect profile or other of psychedelic drugs mm -hmm. or as ketamine is an atypical psychedelic. Um, so I, uh, I write a paper that, uh, helped inspire some of my thesis, although of course I'm working on psilocybin, a different drug. Um, but it uh, is a fantastic paper out of the Dice Roth lab at Stanford. Um, and in it, they're looking at, uh, the neural dynamics in mice and the cortical dynamics that characterize the dissociative state of ketamine, because of course these experiments are very difficult to do rigorously in humans. You need to use mouse models, but of course mice cannot tell you whether they're dissociating. Um, so they used um, a pain assay as a behavioral proxy for dissociative effects in mice. Um, and this is obviously interesting because my first thought uh, when I read the paper is like, well, doesn't this sort of confound their behavioral measurement? Because, um, you know, isn't, isn't the analgesic effect sort of different than the dissociative effect or is it not? Or, or are, can, might these results imply that it would be in practice quite difficult to dissociate analgesic and dissociative effects. So to that line, I wanted to ask, um, for instance, is there human data that suggests they are quite separable or um, are there particular uh, delivery schemes that could optimize the analgesic profile as opposed to the psychedelic profile? It's that's fascinating, and and it is. It's always a problem with animal models, you know, trying to get that, trying to get a sense of what you're, you know, you got to be really careful the questions you ask and how you ask them because you're going to spend some money and time, and you want to know you've answered questions when when you when you get your data back. It's an interesting take on things. I I, I think it's complicated because I would say that ketamine, you know, it works at the dorsal horn and the spinal cord, I think it probably works at the organelle, the pain, the pain signaling, you know, body and the actual skin and organs and bone and things like that, that actually initiates the signal. Uh, and it also has a very specific effect in the brain of, of kind of dissembling the salience network and executive, actually, honestly, all of the, all of the main networks, the salience network, the default mode network, the executive network, all of, all of these networks that normally organize and kind of stereotype response to signal, whatever it is, gets disrupted. And when you can imagine, when you remove salience, when you remove importance from signal, from pain signal, even if it is getting to the brain, right? at the brain level that that network disruption would be considered you know probably associated to some extent with dissociation it also would be dissociated associated with a reduced um salience of the pain signal that's coming in 
I, I believe that pretty, fairly strongly, although I don't have any human data to point towards that. It really fits with what you hear people describe, which is sometimes I can see, I can even feel the pain signal coming in, but it doesn't affect me in the same way. I just, it just doesn't, it doesn't scare me. It's not taking over my consciousness the way that the salience network is designed to do when something is very important. It's designed to get the entire brain kind of recruited towards attending to that particular issue. Uh, sometimes to the detriment of the human, because that's all they can think about. Yeah. So actually that's a really interesting line of research. I'm the lab that I'm in is actually mainly a chronic pain lab with literally the exception of my project. Um, huh. But so, so what you said was really interesting to me because immediately I'm thinking like, okay, theoretically, if you could make a version that couldn't ascend into the brain um, mm -hmm. and was just blocking spinal cord NMDA receptors, perhaps they have a particular subunit that you would target um, uh, do you think that that would work or do you think that you need these more central nervous system circuits to say, no, these pain signals aren't important. And that's why, um, you know, uh, yeah. you won't be bothered by the pain anymore. I think you would, ca I think you would capture signal. I think you would actually have a mild anti-pain effect, but I don't think it would be as potent or as, as, um, effective in turning down or, or ratcheting down chronic pain as well, because so much of chronic pain is central and so much of chronic pain is perception of the pain itself. So I think it really would depend on what you're actually trying to achieve. It'd be very interesting to see what those do. I, I would be, uh, I would be hopeful uh, and I would be a bit skeptical if anybody told me they were as effective. I think that would be very surprising uh, to me. Uh, on the other hand, I think that, you know, we need a lot of tools. And so I, I would be excited to see what, what, what that might look like. Yeah. Well, I am also very excited. I think we both are. Um, so, okay. We just have a couple like lighter questions to wrap this up. Um, so first, uh, you, you mentioned this when you were talking about, a, a purpose of your device for DMT, but, uh, looking into the future, how do you imagine that Vexen's technology could be repurposed either to treat different diseases or to deliver different drugs? Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. That's a big, you just, that's a nice setup. I, what, it, what was interesting for us is that we set ourselves to solving a specific problem. And I, I just, I think it's kind of fascinating how innovations happen and like, you know, how, how, how progress happens, but we set ourselves to solving this issue with ketamine and it turned out the basic formulation protocol that we developed applies to almost any small molecule that has an ionizable nitrogen kind of, you know, with a PKA above, you know, above four and definitely above five. And what that means is that there are a whole lot of molecules that we are starting to apply this same technique too. And there are a lot of molecules out there that would be, there would be a lot of value if people, people could get out of the hospital for delivery. Um, one example would be antibiotics. There are a number of antibiotics that are simply just not available orally. If you were to take them orally, they just either get broken down or they just don't get into the body properly uh, to, to get a blood level that you would be looking for. Uh, so to be able to deliver those antibiotics, not by IV, 
in the hospital in kind of a hazmat style room where somebody, everybody has to gown up just to go in the room to deliver lunch, um, get them home, get them safe, get them out of the hospital where it's easy for them to give that bug to somebody else or to get another bug while they're there. And, you know, it's a big, big problem now. Uh, get them home would be a huge value. Uh, we do do at-home IV antibiotic therapy, but sometimes people don't know how fraught it is. It's expensive. And typically what you have to do is you have to put something in called a pick line that goes all the way up into the vena cava. And it's, a, it's an indwelling line. It will often get infected uh, and you'll end up, people end up with problems uh, and it can be very, very expensive and actually can even end up, it actually can end up life-threatening. So to not have that kind of compromise, having an open line essentially to your heart uh, would be a huge advantage. So there's economic advantages, there's safety advantages, there's just the hospital resource advantages. So we're now looking at antibiotics, we're looking at movement disorder molecules. If you really think about what, you know, what are the limits that we see with L-DOPA and carbidopa, right, with, with uh, Parkinson's disease? One of the problems is, is that those drugs are only absorbed in the duodenum, in the, in the small intestine. And yet, what do Parkinson's patients often have? Gastroparesis. So they take the drug and it just sits there in the stomach and it doesn't get into them because it has to get out of the stomach and into the small intestine before it gets absorbed. And so you have these on and off periods. Even when people are really good at taking their drug on time, it's a four times a day drug, it's difficult. Even when they're very good at it, they can have you know, a lot of flux in terms of efficacy of the drug. So a parenteral approach to movement disorder molecules, and that's just one example. There are a number of different molecules uh, that work at the neuromuscular junction, junctions as well, you know, cholinergic receptors and things like that, that actually could have some advantage. So we are hard at work. We're, um, it's been a bit, a bit of a shock how many molecules this is applying to now. You know, we have the psychedelics, we have a number of different pathogens pretty much anything in the Shulgin archive. It's so awesome to think about the infinite permutations of innovation that could be resulted from different drugs, different drug classes, different formulations, and different, you know, methods of delivery, um, all within the curtain of, you know, being efficacious, being safe, and as you mentioned, having the adequate, you know, healthcare resources to enabling, you know, the scientific and medical innovation to really come to fruition. So, um, you know, it's so awesome to hear that beyond the psychedelic landscape that your team is also considering, you know, novel therapeutics for movement disorders, because as we all know, L-DOPA has its clear limitations. And so we're so happy to hear that um, there's a whole kind of landscape of innovation occurring within Bexton Biomedical. And I think kind of on that topic, you know, Sophie and I were both scientifically trained individuals working on our PhDs, and we both have this aspiration to make a true kind of impact in the psychedelic space. Um, like you have and, you know, your entire team has. And so with that said, we're wondering if you have any general advice for medically trained, scientifically trained or business trained folks who, you know, have the similar aspiration of, you know, doing some good in this space. Oh, that's a great question. It's very sweet. And um, I'm, you know, I'm excited for both of you. And again, excited for, for, this next generation to, to have innovative tools. Uh, there's been, there was a little bit of a, moment in pharmacology where we kind of felt, well, is this it? Is this all we're going to have? You know, we've, we kind of know most of the receptors there, there are new ones coming online, but it's, uh, and so I, I would really point towards deliveries as being a very important aspect of this. And, and the, the rise of 
patient-friendly devices and the engineering that's required and the precision that's required is really bringing on a lot of solutions. Um, and we also have, I would, I would point really specifically towards something that is often forgotten or not, not really quite understood in the Western medical model, which is that, you know, look at plants, you know, really remember that medicines came from plants and, and understand your biochemistry, understand the way things work. Because if you understand how they work, you can actually often intuit what a solution will be without having to be told because you can you actually understand how the machine works. And so sometimes people forget their biochemistry. I know a lot of doctors that are even good friends and they say, oh, Jeff, you know, you remember that stuff, but nobody does, nobody remembers it. Why do you even expect us to? And I say, because it's important and it actually can tell you what the answer is, why somebody needs to think about doing something in a certain way. It helps you understand why vitamins work and why that certain vitamins, the right vitamin for the right person you know, based on their enzymatics. And, you know, it's, it's very, very exciting to look at the discernment of people's SNPs and their enzymatic functional kind of deficit is not quite the right word, but insufficiencies. You know, we have the first time really where for a hundred dollars, you can really see the workforce that is at work in your metabolism. You know, up to now, all we could see was the object, the stuff that's on the assembly line, right? You get some blood and you look at molecules, but in now for the first time, we can actually see the workforce, all of the enzymes. We can see what forms of workforce do you have out there? And you can say, Hey, look, you know, that worker is sleeping on the job. You know, they're not showing up, you know, they need more tools. They need more vitamins. You know, vitamins are a cofactor for an enzyme. It's like the tool that a worker uses. They need more tools to get the job done. So you can target things like that. And it's, it's really exciting. The data and the confluence of, of data all coming together is going to make a really, really big difference. Absolutely. And on that note, uh, I'm personally so excited for when we can intertwine what we currently know about this advancing field of pharmacogenomics kind of in the landscape of you know, these therapeutics. And so, as you mentioned, to target specific you know, CYP enzymes, et cetera. And so, yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate that advice. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for being here today and answering our questions. Yeah, good. Thank you both. Today's episode was produced by your hosts, Adrian Joe and Sophie Rogers. You can find out more about Psych Exchange on our website at www.psychexchangepodcast.com. If you liked this podcast, please share it with your friends. The music for the show was written and produced by our friend and talented musician, Brand, who you can find on Spotify, SoundCloud, and social media. Our website was developed by friend and expert web developer, Colin Mackey, who you can find at www.mackeydev.com. Thank you for listening and see you next time.